over the past two decades, we have seen an incredible resurgence uh, in interest uh, of uh, in uric acid because we now recognize that it is playing a central, pivotal role uh, in various common metabolic issues, elevation of blood pressure, elevation of blood sugar, insulin resistance, increased production of body fat, increased storage of body fat. And, you know, as it uh, turns out, we have seen uh, for many years uh, this correlation of elevated uric acid with things like obesity and with diabetes and with hypertension. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gravey. everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravey. I'm the host of the show. And I have the pleasure of bringing you today an interview with Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times bestselling author. His books have been published in 32 languages and include the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, with over one million copies in print. And I actually interviewed Dr. Perlmutter on Food Integrity Now uh, some time ago. You can look that up if you desire. He also serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, He is recognized internationally as a leader in the field of nutritional influences and nutritional disorders. He has many other accolades, but let's get right to it. We are going to be talking with him today about his most recent book, Drop Acid. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome to Food Integrity Now. It's wonderful to be with you today. Thanks. It's wonderful to be with you too. And I'm excited to speak with you today about your most recent book, Drop Acid, which I found so informative. So let's dig in. You bet. Okay. So until very recently, I hadn't ever really thought about uric acid. I knew it was associated with gout and nobody was really talking about it. I really think it's uh, important to learn about. So let's start out by talking about what is uric acid and why high uric acid levels are so common in our modern world. Common and, and, and very important. And um, you're correct that, uh, you know, certainly in my education uh, and, you know, medical education in general, that Uh, Uric acid is only looked at in the context of that disease, gout, a a, a disease in which uh, crystals are formed in the joints, typically the great toe, and it's painful, the disease of kings and the king of diseases, as it were, because it was a disease uh, of the nobility in the day, those who could eat very rich foods that would ultimately increase uric acid and therefore cause gout. Um, And that's how I learned about it. I learned what it causes it, the relation to uric acid, and quickly, of course, how to treat it by giving a drug. And that was about as far as it it got. But the reality is that researchers and doctors have been looking at uric acid for an awful long time uh, in another context. And this work was uh, actually began 
uh, begun in the late 1800s by Dr. Alexander Haig, who published a book uh, that described uh, this elevation of uric acid being related to cognitive decline, being related to things like depression and skin disorders and headaches, for example. In fact, it was his own experience with terrible headaches and the resolution of his headaches when he got his uric acid level down that led him into this area of, of research, as is so often the case. Um, <clears throat> the information was pretty much disregarded or perhaps even worse, buried for a number of years. But over the past two decades, we have seen an incredible resurgence uh, in interest uh, of uh, in uric acid because we now recognize that it is playing a central, pivotal role uh, in various common metabolic issues, elevation of blood pressure, elevation of blood sugar, insulin resistance, increased production of body fat, increased storage of body fat. And, you know, as it uh, turns out, we have seen uh, for many years uh, this correlation of elevated uric acid with things like obesity and with diabetes and with hypertension and thought that it was sort of just kind of along for the ride, sort of uh, just there. We never thought that it was actually playing a, a role in causing these problems. And this was actually uh, the title of a, a publication that uh, back in 2016, uh, a collaborative publication from Turkish and Japanese researchers. Uh, the, the study was called Uric Acid in Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to a Central Player. And they really unpacked not just the fact that elevation of uric acid is common in these metabolic issues, but that it's actually causing these issues. Wow, uh, that is profound. And you know, you can be sure that uh, that would be interesting for me as a neurologist because elevation of blood sugar is a risk for Alzheimer's. Type two diabetes will as much as quadruple a person's risk for Alzheimer's. Inflammation is central to virtually all of the neurodegenerative conditions like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis. So anything that is involved in these metabolic derangements is going to be interesting for me. And that's really what set me off in terms of wanting to learn as much as I could about this science. And as it uh, happens, what really got, got the ball rolling for me was listening to a podcast of a researcher at the University of Colorado named Dr. Richard Johnson. And he has really done, you know, most of the, of the pivotal work uh, in this area, both uh, in uh, animals and subsequently in humans, and has clearly demonstrated that not only is elevation of uric acid responsible for a lot of these issues, but that there can be improvement uh, in these issues when uric acid is brought under control. You know, to me, that that information is uh, worthy of of dissemination. That's for sure. And you know, I felt duty bound to get that information out there because it is so profoundly important. You know, anything that we can do to to get people's metabolic health back on track is going to be uh, really uh, profoundly important and through a very wide net. You know, we live in a country here in America where we have 34 million adults who have been given a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. That's 10.5% of the American adult population. 
Uh, 33% of American adults has been diagnosed with so-called prediabetes. That's 88 million people. Wow. And now that we know that you know, there are downstream terrible consequences from be being diabetic. I mentioned Alzheimer's. We know bad outcome uh, from COVID, for example. We know renal failure, uh, other issues, coronary artery disease, uh, heart failure, all related to being diabetic. To have a new tool, and that is this elevation of uric acid that we can target and be effective in lowering, not necessarily by using drugs, uh, which is you know, the other side of the information that we'll discuss, uh, is very, very important and I think very, very empowering. So uric acid is a waste product. Why is it so frequently overlooked? Is it because of the lack of knowledge by physicians? It is. I think that to this day, most physicians would would use that term waste product, mm -hmm. the waste product of the body's breakdown of purines, which are the breakdown product of DNA and RNA in our foods and in, in our bodies as well the breakdown of alcohol when we choose to consume it, and most importantly, by far and away, the breakdown of the sugar fructose. So, uh, you know, that really should light people up in terms of understanding why uric acid levels are so much higher today than they have been in the past. In the 1920s, uric acid levels in American adults were around 3.5. Now they are coming in at around 6. Wow. What the research is telling us is that anything over 5.5 uh, is when risk begins to increase for the metabolic problems that I just talked about. So the average uric acid level in America is above that threshold. And yet, when you go to your doctor's office and or laboratory and you get back your uric acid level, it will tell you that anything above 7 should be considered out of the normal range. You've got to keep in mind that that only relates to gout because above seven is when the uric acid begins to precipitate in, in the blood and form crystals. That's what gout is really all about. So it's time that we reassess what we describe as being so-called in the normal range. And I would submit uh, that your listeners deserve better than in the normal range. They deserve to know what's optimal. And what I'm telling them right now is that an optimal level, ideal level, is to keep your uric acid level below 5.5 milligrams per deciliter. And you know what's really handy is you can go online, uh, Amazon or wherever you choose, and you can buy a uric acid home meter and check your uric acid on a strip just like you might check your blood sugar. And yeah, you can go to the laboratory too. And, and a lot of people have already had their uric acid levels checked. It's generally part of the yearly blood work that doctors do again, in the context of gout. But when we recognized that a uric acid level greater than seven is associated with a 16% increased risk of what is called all-cause mortality, meaning death from any cause, a 39% increased risk of dying of a heart attack, a 35% increased risk of dying of a stroke, and interestingly, that uh, for every point elevation above seven, there is an eight to 13% increased risk of death from any cause. Again, we call that all cause mortality. Wow. These are powerfully important numbers. Now these are 
are numbers that are associations. There are correlations of these uh, issues with elevation of uric acid. But now we have reams of data showing that uric acid is actually involved in causing these problems. You know, when you were talking in the book about um, optimal levels versus normal levels, I got out a couple of my blood tests, my routine blood tests that I've had over the last couple of years, and my uric acid was never checked. Would that, would that be because um, they didn't think it was a candidate for gout? Um, and is That's that, right. is that something that you would recommend on the standard test that you go get from your doctor, your annual oh, you or whatever? Okay. I think so what that's we're good. See moving forward is uric acid is going to take it. Uh, it's going to be on the top shelf. It's going to be right there with body weight, blood pressure, blood sugar, fasting, blood sugar, uh, those kinds of things. It's that important to know about. Okay. So you mentioned that the three sources of uric acid are fructose, alcohol, and purines. Let's start with fructose. Well, let me, let me just tell you before we get there that okay. the, the story gets even more colorful later on. Okay. Because, and we'll explore this, but it turns out that your body actually manufactures fructose. And we'll, we'll get into that because it's, it's when this science gets really exciting. But first we'll talk about fructose. So fructose is a sugar. It derives its name from fruit sugar because it's found in higher amounts in, in fruit. And this is the player. Fructose and glucose are as different as night and day in terms of what they do in the body. Glucose is the body's acute energy source and fructose is the should be looked upon as the energy storage instigator because fructose leads to increased production of body fat and storage of body fat. So they're as different as can be, but oddly enough, they are combined, they are united uh, chemically, actually, fructose and glucose to form something called sucrose. And sucrose is the name for common white table sugar. It's called sucrose. That's 50% fructose and 50% glucose. So when you, you add a teaspoon of fructose to your tea, or rather of uh, table sugar to your tea, half of that teaspoon is pure fructose. And that does some important things in your body. You know, when you consume a lot of fructose, you are directly stimulating the production of uric acid and telling the body prepare for winter. Because this is a highly conserved signaling mechanism whereby our hunter-gatherer and even our primate ancestors would would be eating fructose in the late summer and the early fall, and it would signal their bodies that winter was coming. In other words, that they were at risk for starvation, better make fat. And so what happened around 15 million years ago is uh, over a period of about a million years during what is called the middle Miocene period when the earth was cooler and food was less abundant, was there was a selection pressure and there were a group of our uh, primate ancestors who had a superpower and their superpower was that they produced a little bit more body fat and what allowed them to produce a little bit more body fat and therefore have a little bit of an edge over a million years uh, to survive was because they lost the genes for an enzyme called uricase that would have otherwise broken down uric acid. So because they lost the ability to break down uric acid, uric acid increased 
and this group of our primate ancestors, they survived. And now all of us on the planet have lost uricase and therefore human uric acid levels are four to five times higher uh, uric acid levels in other mammals. That's so fascinating. It is fascinating. It's, uh, it's a superpower that, that we have that allowed us to survive when there was no food around. And we would trigger this pathway rarely. Only in the, when fructose was available uh, would that pathway, or, or we were dehydrated, would we stimulate this whole pathway and tell our bodies, you know, sound the alarm, if you would, to make glucose to power the brain so that we could avoid uh, being eaten by other animals and we might be clever enough to find some food, to raise our blood pressure so that we wouldn't die of dehydration, not having enough fluids, to raise our production of body fat and our storage of body fat so we could survive, and to ratchet down our energy consumption by turning off to some degree the function of what are called the mitochondria, the energy producers in each of our cells. So, you know, until quite recent times when food has become abundant, you know, that became the state of affairs around 14,000 years ago with agriculture and certainly much more recently as well. Uh, this was a wonderful mechanism. It was great uh, to become a, a little bit fatter than your neighbor. It was, it was powerfully important to develop insulin resistance and become, you know, pre-diabetic. That was a good thing in the wow. day because it wasn't like our ancestors were pre-diabetic all year long. It was mm -hmm. only as a survival mechanism. But as long as you trigger the pathway, then blood sugar levels are going to continue to go up. Well, what do we see today? We see that people are preparing for the winter 365 days a year, the winter that never comes. And that explains the fact that, you know, by the year 2030, 50% of American adults won't just be overweight, but will be actually classified as being obese. Wow. That, that is, you know, in America, we have 88 million, that's 33% of adults pre-diabetic. Uh, 34 million type 2 diabetics uh, related to adult adulthood. That's 10.5% of adults that are fully uh, full on type 2 diabetic. They have quadrupled their risk for Alzheimer's. They have dramatically increased their risk for coronary artery disease, some forms of cancer, uh, you know, various other diabetes related conditions. So uh, what we're seeing then has been given the term evolutionary environmental mismatch. Whereas the genes that have allowed us to survive and persevere through such adversity for such a long time are now being given environmental signals, meaning food, uh, that are leading to our decline in health and longevity. Our longevity has been declining for the past four years. And that's for the first time in history has that happened. Just to be clear, that predates COVID by two years. So it's not that this is a COVID-related issue, though COVID has made it significantly worse, but our, our lifespan began to decline before there was any COVID. And it's because of the incredible pervasive nature of these metabolic challenges that we're seeing, not just in America, but all across the, the developed world. We're getting a lot of fructose, basically from processed foods. Well, it's true. Uh, in the grocery store, about 60 to 70% of 
processed packaged foods have added sweetener. And by and large, that is uh, going to be something like high fructose corn syrup or other fructose derivative. So we're getting a lot of fructose, even though we don't think we're using added sugar and we're doing our best to avoid drinking soft drinks and fruit juice loaded with fructose. Uh, and so, yeah, it's sneaking its way in. But um, you know, we'll come back to this, but I think this is a good time to introduce another topic that I that I entrade uh, earlier, and that is that we can trigger our own bodies to make more fructose, to sound the alarm through uric acid, to make fat, make raise our blood pressure, raise our blood sugar. We can do that by activating a pathway in the body and in the brain, as if that's not part of the body. Uh, that converts blood sugar into fructose as a survival mechanism. And one of the most powerful things that we can do to activate that pathway is to eat foods that will raise our blood sugar. And that's when we get to these highly processed carbohydrates uh, that you just referred to. So when we eat those foods, uh, raise our blood sugar, it's one of the pathways by which we deal with blood sugar is converting it into fructose. Again, sounding the alarm. Uh, so it's something we don't want to do. Another important way that we activate the production of this dreaded fructose in our bodies is when our bodies think that they are dehydrated. Wow. Dehydration turns on the pathway to make more fructose. And our bodies think they are dehydrated when the sodium level goes up. So when we lose, we've lost free water, we're not able to drink free water, the blood sodium level goes up, and that's a trigger uh, that we are dehydrated, and that turns on this pathway. The other way that we can increase the activation of this pathway by raising our sodium is to eat a lot of salt. So it explains a lot of missing links, doesn't it? I mean, we've, we've yeah. known for such a long time that uh, eating a lot of salt is a risk factor for raising blood, uh, blood pressure. Yeah, we knew that. But we know that eating a lot of salt is associated with incredibly increased risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Now we understand how it happens because when our bodies think they're dehydrated and serum sodium goes up, we make fructose, that becomes a uric acid and that stimulates fat production. So the question then becomes, well, if you're dehydrated chronically, why do you want to produce more body fat? What's the value, right? And the, the example I'd like to give is this animal that can walk across the desert for weeks at a time without drinking water, has a great big hump on its back. And uh, what do you suppose is in the hump on the camel's back? It's fat. Because when the camel and when you and I metabolize fat, we produce two things, carbon dioxide and water. So we create free water in our bodies, metabolic water, when we are metabolizing fat. So to have a little bit extra body fat is a hedge against dehydration. Uh, it's, you know, one, Interesting. Of the fat, yeah, one of the fattest animals is the, the hummingbird. The hummingbird getting ready for its epic thousand mile journey. I would have never guessed that one. Sure, <laughs> 40% body weight is fat. Wow. And you know, uh, if you want a hummingbird in your backyard, you put out a hummingbird feeder. And what do you put in that hummingbird feeder? Sugar. You bet. You put sugar water and it yes. drinks that sugar water knowing darn well 
might doesn't know this, but it's physiology responds by creating body fat, which is a storage depot, yes, for calories. That's for sure. Very efficient, I might add. But it's also a resource from which that body can make free water, make metabolic water. So that's the advantage of, of activating this pathway when the body thinks it's dehydrated. So um, those are the things that we then need to think about when we're trying to help people reduce their uric acid without having to resort to drugs. Not that drugs don't come into play at times, they do. But recognizing that eating salty foods is gonna raise uric acid, certainly foods that are high in fructose like fruit juice uh, and uh, sodas and anything that has added sweeteners in it, uh, certain even uh, certain types of dried fruits high in fructose uh, and also alcohol, but specifically not really wine. Wine seems to be not associated with elevation of uric acid. Hard liquor, definitely. But the worst player of all is beer because beer does contain alcohol. We know that. But beer is very high in purines because it's made from yeast. Yeast has a lot of gen a lot of nucleic acids, very cellular, and therefore uh, beer is, you know, a powerful signal to your body to make fat. So the whole notion of light, uh, drinking a beer that's light or that is low calories because it has less sugar, that's interesting, but that's not what's make, what makes people fat when they consume it. What's turning on the, 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 the body's requirement to make fat is because the high level of purines and the alcohol are turning on a signal in the body telling it to make fat for survival. So that's the science of the beer belly. Wow, that's know. fascinating too. It makes it's, sense well, though. I've heard you say that three times. I, guess I know. Pretty it's, well here. Yeah. Uh, but you know, to be clear, uh, in Japan, I mentioned earlier, they're, they're really dialed in on this science. And, and if you go to Japan, you can buy purine-free beer because they want to do everything they can to help people keep their uric acids under control. So, you know, that, that way you can drink beer and not worry about the very high levels of purines. You know, we, we've seen uh, no alcohol beer for an awful long time, but you know, the notion of cutting out the carbs uh, in beer as being necessarily a really great thing. I mean, I'm in favor of it, but it's not going to keep people from, from turning on their you know, physiology that's telling it to make fat. Wow. So also fructose is in some vegetables though, like broccoli and artichokes and asparagus. Let's talk about why that type of fructose is different. Uh, certainly. And beyond that, the, the, the actual vegetables that you just mentioned contain fairly significant amounts of purines as well. So, uh, you know, the reality is that even fruit doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of fructose in it. Uh, an apple might have five grams of fructose. That's not an awful lot. So, uh, and it's considerably less in uh, in vegetables, but again, they may have high purine. So you wonder why is it okay to eat these vegetables? Well, what very large uh, studies have demonstrated, and these are studies involving tens of thousands of people and finding out what they eat and comparing that to their uric acid levels, have revealed that those who eat lots of these types of vegetables, uh, the dark green leafy vegetables, certainly the cruciferous vegetables, uh, don't have elevation of uh, uric acid. In fact, their uric acid levels are lower. And actually, even those who eat fruit, uric acid levels uh, are actually lower. 
because in fruit we have some uh, we have the other side of the coin. We have things in fruits and vegetables that actually help the body lower uric acid. We have uh, things uh, like bioflavonoids, like quercetin, for example, that actually reduces the action of an enzyme that's involved in the making of uric acid. Much acts uh, exactly as the, the gout drug works by targeting a specific an, uh, enzyme. Uh, if anybody is getting ready to take the quiz, that would be xanthine oxidase. But if not, uh, quercetin found in fruits and vegetables and certainly high in foods like red onion, uh, targets that enzyme, renders it less effective and is almost as, as powerful as the drugs used to treat gout. So think about that. In addition, there's fiber that slows the fructose release when we consume uh, an apple or consume broccoli, whatever uh, the fruit or vegetable is. And finally, Fruit and vegetables contain vitamin C, and vitamin C is really a, a powerful way uh, that we can rid our bodies of uric acid. When we consume higher levels of vitamin C, in the book we recommend 500 milligrams a day, not a, a, you know, not a huge number, but that stimulates the, the, the kidney's release of uric acid into the urine and helps bring it under control. So take home message here, Two supplements that are very helpful for lowering uric acid are quercetin, 500 milligrams a day, and vitamin C, 500 milligrams a day. So the dosages are the same, just keep in mind quercetin and vitamin C. Uh, and again, these are things that you can get in the foods you eat, but to get that level of quercetin, you'd have to eat about eight whole onions every day. And you might not be the most popular kid on the block if you do that, but... Uh, but anyway, you know, fortunately, we can go to the health food store and, and buy quercetin. Yeah, I eat a lot of onions, but that's that's kind of over the top. Well, that is great information. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about alcohol and how that can up your uric acid levels. What what is your research found in this area? So alcohol is metabolized exactly the same as fructose. And it's not a real complicated uh, set of uh, enzymes, et cetera, that are involved in its metabolism, but it is directly uh, uh, metabolized into uric acid, just like, as I mentioned, fructose. And, you know, it really depends in terms of the context. Drinking pure alcohol like you might get from hard liquor, for example, uh, is directly going to form a given amount of uric acid and is associated with fairly prominent elevation of the uric acid. But when alcohol is consumed with um, things like polyphenols that are involved in reducing uric acid production, uh, like you might get, uh, in, for example, in wine consumption, then we don't really see a dramatic uh, association with increased levels of uric acid. That relationship is stronger in women than in men. men. Women actually who drink a couple of glasses of wine a day have a, a slightly lower uric acid in comparison to women who do not. The relationship isn't as profound in men. It's pretty much a neutral event in men. So, you know, ultimately, I guess that's a good thing as well. But again, uh, the worst context to consume your alcohol is beer at least from the perspective of uh, uric acid. So it's the purines in the beer from the yeast that seem to be wreaking so much, ha uh, so much havoc. Um, you know, again, uh, as it relates to 
getting back to uh, things that elevate the uric acid, there, uh, as we look at the mechanisms within the kidney by which we either reabsorb uric acid and therefore contribute to raising it, or we manufacture it, or we inhibit its excretion, uh, there are certain drugs that are actually active in that area. And I think it's probably worthwhile to talk about those. So let's just mention for people, and I'm certainly not suggesting that they throw these drugs out the door, but there are drugs. So if people are on certain drugs and, and their uric acid is, is elevated, that they could then discuss with their doctors, is there an alternative? And one of the biggest players in our society are what are called the proton pump inhibitor drugs. These are the over-the-counter acid-blocking drugs that you know, we, we see on TV, every time you eat a sausage, you get heartburn, you need to block stomach acid and take this or that pill. And they're certainly prescribed as well. 15 million Americans take these uh, proton pump inhibitors, these PPI acid blocking drugs, and they are associated with significantly increased uric acid, as is uh, aspirin, testosterone, Viagra, uh, even uh, Parkinson's drugs like levodopa, uh, drugs for the lungs like theophylline. And, you know, another big player are the water pills, the diuretics that people take to control their blood pressure. Another blood pressure uh, type or classification would be the beta blockers. So I think these are uh, areas that people should be thinking about once they've gotten their uric acid results back. And certainly if those levels are elevated, then they need to really consider, could that be, you know, could my drugs uh, possibly be contributing to it. You know, it's probably not going to be 100%. You look at your fructose, you look at your alcohol, you look at your fruit and vegetable consumption, you add in some quercetin, vitamin C, but look at the drugs as well, and then repeat your uric acid uh, level in a month or two and bring that uh, under control. That is the key to regaining metabolic health, to really unwinding metabolic mayhem and you know, a kind of a missing link for so many people who've done this or that diet and, and really been pretty faithful with it and yet, you know, hit a roadblock and can't seem to lose that last bit of weight. You know, I, I would submit that if their uric acid level is elevated, the body is doing everything it can to make and store fat. So, you know, as we talked about in our early time together, it, this is really a wonderful, powerful new tool to have in the toolbox. Yeah, yes, it is. We're talking about purines. And I have a question. And I think some of our listeners may have a similar question. Can you explain a little bit more about what is a purine? Sure. So purines are the breakdown products of the DNA and the RNA that are found in the cells of meat, of vegetables uh, and even when we break down our own body tissues we create you know our muscle tissues for example they're very it's very cellular when we break down those cells it releases the nucleic uh, material the dna and the rna and then those are broken down to form uric acid so certain foods are extremely high uh, in the amount of purines that are liberated and these are foods that are very cellular like eating liver, eating kidney, eating uh, sardines, anchovies, scallops. These are foods that traditionally people with gout have been told to avoid uh, because they're very high in purines. Uh, but again, uh, we can certainly target our purines 
uh, I mean, raise our purines when we do something very uh, suddenly um, stressful uh, in terms of physically, uh, like, you know, if you're used to running three miles each morning, that's great. And then suddenly you go out and run a half marathon. Uh, you're going to be in a situation where you're suddenly going to raise your purines and your uric acid will absolutely follow suit. So on that subject, what role does exercise play in lowering your uric acid levels? So there are things that will <clears throat> acutely raise uric acid, but chronically over the long term help with uh, keeping uric acid levels in check. And that includes uh, exercise. Uh, we know that, again, uh, a given amount of exercise, root you doing your routine will not raise uric acid and will keep you in shape. Uh, and as such, keep your uric acid levels uh, where they need to be. Uh, same thing with uh, fasting, for example. If you suddenly decide you're going to go on a three-day fast, your uric acid levels are going to increase. Why might that be? Because when you're fasting, you begin ca ca catabolically breaking down your own body tissue for energy. And as such, you're going to liberate purines from the cellular breakdown. That's going to raise your uric acid. But what happens after... Uh, fasting uh, is uh, is finalized, then uh, uric acid levels return to where they were previously, or actually might be even a little bit better. So it's definitely a, a, a notion of taking one step backwards and two steps forward. I'm a proponent of fasting. I'm a proponent of time restricted eating, intermittent fasting, and uh, you know. But again, as we talked about in drop acid, these are. Uh, modalities that will transiently raise the uric acid. So when you're checking your uric, uric acid, we talked about that. We talk about don't check it following very vigorous exercise or if you're in the middle of a fast because it's going to be elevated and you're not going to get a good, uh, a meaningful result. Well, that's great to know. So what else could help lower your uric acid levels? Well, again, um, Am I saying that we should never use medication? I'm to be clear, I'm not saying that. That's a decision right. people want to make with their doctors. But keep in mind that taking this nutritional supplement called quercetin has been demonstrated to be very, very powerful powerful. One study in 2015 in the British Journal of Nutrition showed that 500 milligrams in just uh, eight weeks led to an eight percent reduction of the uric acid level in 22 uh, young men who had borderline elevation of the uric acid level so that's substantial we, oh it's very <laughs> substantial and that was just in eight weeks you know give them a few months see what happens uh so quercetin is definitely something we should be thinking about uh luteolin l-u-t-e-o-l-i-n 100 milligrams per day is also a bioflavonoid that in particular has pretty dramatic effects as it relates to lowering uric acid. So something to think about. We mentioned the vitamin C. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if there's any particular food that's really quite handy, it would be tart cherries. Uh, that's been recommended as a, a gout remedy for many, many years, actually for decades. Why? Because it works. When you look at uh, some interventional trials where people were given tart cherry extract, uh, women in particular, uh, overweight women, their uric acid levels went down quite substantially in comparison to placebo. So tart cherry is something people might want to be looking at. You know, you can buy the extract. It's even available as a powder. That's interesting. So, I recently started taking tart cherry, but not, I wasn't thinking about my uric acid. Because people have been proponents of tart cherry 
for a number of years because they've seen improvements in metabolic parameters like weight gain, blood sugar, and um, blood pressure by consuming tart cherry, but nobody knew why. And now we filled in that missing bullet point that it's through it. I mean, there may be other mechanisms, I'm sure, but one important mechanism is it helps to lower uric acid and turns off the screaming signal telling the body to prepare for winter. So now yeah. we know how and why it works. I think it helps me sleep better too. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. that's, that's... Um, Elevation of uric acid is seen in people who don't sleep well. And wow. what does that do? Uh, so they don't sleep well, that puts them at risk for increased body weight and poor decision-making. And then they eat more uh, of the wrong kinds of foods, they gain more weight and then they don't sleep well because they develop sleep apnea and all the things related to sleep as a consequence of overweight and obesity. And as such, their uric acid levels will continue to rise. So in the book, what I really love is that you offer lots of solutions and you offer um, some recipes in what you call the love diet. Let's talk a little bit about what that is. Sure. So love diet means lower uric values. Uh, so it's not L-O-V-E, it's L-U-V. And we created uh, a series of, of 40 recipes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks, desserts uh, that are specifically designed to target elevated uric acid with some hero ingredients uh, along the way that contain the things that we've talked about, higher levels of, for example, the bioflavonoids like quercetin, real hero ingredients. And it just, you know, in addition to taking the supplements, and paying attention to the various other things that we talked about, avoiding fructose, thinking about purine consumption, avoiding those foods that are high in purines, uh, thinking about what type of alcohol one might choose to consume, uh, really paved the way for people to be able to bring their uric acid levels under control without medication. Now, again, that's not for 100% of people, but I, I would say it's likely most people, uh, but is, again, you know, there is, uh, likely a place for medication, even if people don't have gout, if in fact their uric acid levels are profoundly elevated because of the risk that it poses uh, with respect to the metabolic issues that we've been talking about today. Oh, well, that's great. And I looked at some of those recipes and there's nothing too complicated about that diet, in my opinion. So thank well, you. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because the truth be known is I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't have the most culinary skills uh, in the neighborhood. So. Um, <laughs> well, I do. And I, oh, I, I thought, thought it was great. <laughs> great. Well, then good. I'll let you do the cooking for me. <laughs> well, you know, I told my clients, uh, it's never been as important as it is to cook your own food these days, you know, and if you oh, can't, sure. if you can't cook it, find somebody to help you cook it or do something. Otherwise you're just relegated to eating out. And we know what that brings in most cases. It brings a lot of fructose and salt. It, it brings That's a lot sure. of fructose and, and, and salt. So, well, Dr. Perlmutter, this has been such a great information for our listeners and it, it just may be the missing link for some people. Carol, yeah. it's it's been a pleasure, and you know I, I certainly don't want to portray this as the end all, 
Uh, but as I've said a couple of times, it becomes a very, very important tool in the toolbox. And the question would be then, what is step one? And step one is to know your uric acid level. Go online, buy a monitor, call your doctor, ask him or her if it was done last year or with our last blood work, or go to the doctor and say, oh, by the way, with my blood work, uh, in addition to my fasting blood sugar, I'd like you to check my uric acid. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of doctors are going to ask why. Because, uh, you know, when you, when you mentioned that you now have this information about uric acid being related to metabolic distress, I think to this day, at least in America, not so much uh, in uh, other countries like Japan and Turkey and et cetera, I think a lot of doctors here are, are not going to be fully up to speed and maybe perhaps uh, down on the idea that you want to check your uric acid level. You know, people do tend to be down on what they're not up on. Right. And having said that, that's when you take a deep breath and say, well, you know, if you just don't mind, I'd like to know my uric acid level. And, you know, if people want to be a little bit more bold, they could say, I happen to have read some new information that relates elevation of the uric acid to uh, various metabolic issues. And I would say that even beyond just reading drop acid, the simplest thing that a person can do in that situation where a doctor might not embrace this relationship is to simply go online and Google two words. The first word is uric. And the second word is metabolic, not uric metabolism, because we don't want to learn about the metabolism of uric acid, but put in uric and the term metabolic, and all the literature will come up relating elevation of uric acid to hypertension and elevated blood sugar and, and obesity to all those things that uh, are now being talked about. Wonderful information. And there is a lot of science out there, isn't there? You bet. Well, we reviewed over 400 peer-reviewed studies for, uh, to write uh, drop acid. Wow. So do you have any books on the horizon coming? Oh, um, <laughs> we just put this one out. And uh, so I, I would say probably the next book will be the uh, uh, a, a, a whole book of, drop, uh, of Love Diet. So the Love Diet book. Uh, recipe book will probably be next. You know, they're great recipes. These are already 40, but we'll probably put out a, you know, a book with color plates and what the food looks like. Uh, I think that's what's next. That's wonderful. Well, I think I have every book you've ever written. And oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I, uh, I actually interviewed your son with Brainwash. Oh, nice. And, and so um, I always learn so much when I read your books and interview you. So thank well, you're you. Very, so very kind. Oh, Thanks well, for having me on your program today, by the way. Yes, you are welcome. Well, we um, we're just thrilled to get this information out to our listeners. And I highly recommend the book Drop Acid. I think um, you're a very good writer, too. It was easy to read. It wasn't too too sciencey think what is he talking about i really did get it so thank you again and oh, my pleasure thank you you can get that book anywhere right oh that's for sure yes okay thank you and we'll be back soon with another great show 